Sound design. And I actually got a lot of flack from some of the like some of the guys there, like, oh, you know, why are you working for free? Why are you doing this? This is stupid. Sure. You know, like they're just they're just going to take advantage of you. Um, and I'm like, no, like you know, I want to learn how to do this. I want to be out here more. And I'll never forget um, our truck driver at the time. We had like a full time truck driver, and he's like, he's like, you guys are all laughing. He's like, yeah, one day you're all going to work for him. Sound design. <laughs> Sound design lives produced independently. By me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning for live sound engineers, guaranteed to improve your competence and consistency. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the Director of Audio at IMS Technology Services, Chris Leonard. Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You're actually in Minneapolis. You're in my office right I'm now. I'm in your office. This is the first time I've ever done an interview in my office. That's got to, logistically got to be a lot easier and less editing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I think it'll just be of higher quality, but, you know, our isolation is not so good. Yeah, well, it's too bad we can't have the windows open. It's, it's beautiful outside right now. It is a beautiful day. It's, it's. Um, I don't know if weather in Philadelphia is like this. You're from, you're not from Philadelphia, but that's where you live now. Yeah, yeah, originally from Maryland. Okay, so you've been in Philadelphia for about nine years. Yeah, you said? eight years. Yeah. Okay, cool. And that's how long you've been in IMS because you moved correct. there to that, work there. That's correct. And it seems like in the center of the country, because I'm from Texas, and okay. this is how it was in Texas. Weather will just change, and so we had a heat wave yesterday and the day before, and it got up to 100 degrees, and now it's a beautiful, like, 72 yeah. all day long. Yeah, now, growing up in Maryland, that's what it was like. If, if you didn't like the weather, just wait five minutes, so it'll, it'll change. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, I definitely want to talk to you about your work in, at IMS, designing sound systems, and um, work you've done in the past, touring with people like Tears for Fears. So, first of all, what is your favorite Tears for Fears song? My favorite Tears for Fears song would be Start of a breakdown. Knowing them personally, uh, they're some of the most genuine people uh, that I've worked with. Oh, wow. Their music is killer. Um, they really deeply care about the sound quality, um, and uh, which is they started off as studio musicians who wanted they spent as much time as they could on their first record in the studio to make it sonically the best they could before they went out on tour uh, and released who they were. So their first album is a phenomenal album, you know, whereas some bands, they got to ramp up to what they are. Um, and uh, so it was a pleasure to work for in, you know, do monitors and, you know, do stereo ears for guys who cared about panning and, and tonality and all these things. And so, uh, and they, when they would call out frequencies like, oh, let me get less 500 in this guitar, stuff like, like that specific. Uh-huh. Um, because um, they'd spent so much time in the studio. Yes. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get your first job in audio? And I guess it wasn't even a job, because I know you started out working with your dad. Did he ever pay you? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean... You got paid an experience. Yes, paid an experience. He's like, you want to have some fun, kid? No, yeah, so my my joke is I tell people that I've been I've been gigging since I could walk. Okay. Uh and it's almost true. Uh so my yeah, my dad uh got his start in sound when he was in college, uh working for a cover band. 
Um, and uh, and so since ever I came along, uh, where I was putting gear in the back of a station wagon and doing gigs with him almost every weekend. Did he consider himself, was he an entrepreneur, like an audio um, engineer? No, it was just he... kind of on the side for fun. Okay. I mean, it was never really professionally. Uh, I mean, he was an insurance agent and web designer and different things through the years. It was never like a full-time, you know, job uh he you know he was the sound guy for the church so you know growing up you know every weekend you know know, we were at a a mobile church so i had to set up and tear down every week so even as a kid i mean literally i was gigging every weekend Um, and then we had a, uh, a local guy, uh, who had basically a barn full of gear and was doing anything from high school, um, musicals, uh, to concerts and stuff like that, that we would go out as a team. Uh, and actually then I was doing a lot of, um, like lights and video and stuff. Cause my dad was always mixing. Um, you and, got what was left. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. High school was coming to an end and, uh, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for a living. And my dad and I had always joked about, you know, big trucks and going on tour and tour bus and all this stuff and you, you always thought it was like a, like a dream thing i didn't think much of it and i was like well i, I gotta do something from a small town uh yeah small town yeah for sure um and uh, like an hour west of baltimore so you know close enough but you know far enough out in the county so yeah so i had to make a living it's like what am i gonna do and it's like I, well i really want to do the sound thing uh so i found a local school uh called sheffield institute for the recording arts okay. and they have a couple different courses um and it's like a tech um, um like a tech school so you know it's like a 300 hour program uh so i went for a year two nights a week um and went through their what's called their audio works program uh so it's mostly focused on recording they have one live sound portion of the class or the school and uh so i learned i learned a lot while i was there i knew a lot going in which also helped but it definitely uh helped lay a lot of foundation of fundamentals that maybe i wasn't taught um you know how air you know sound travels through the air and 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 um uh you know how how eqs are made up and different you know more than just hey if i turn this knob things get louder or quieter or you know more applicational in theory why and how things happen so it helped lay a good foundation on what i already knew Uh, and ultimately it got me my first gig um at maryland sound one of the instructors was a live sound teacher there and uh, so he was instructed to kind of bring in some some greener newer guys to the company and so I came in uh, for an interview, and he drops uh, a PM4000 schematic in front of me. And he's like, uh, if I want to route this to this, is it possible? And I had to, like, look at the diagram and uh, the uh, schematic and, and say yes or no. And then, if you know, and then okay, well, well uh, yes, well, then how? And I had to show him, oh, because this connects this, you know. So I was like, holy cow. <laughs> Talk about Maryland Sound for a second, because... I only recently heard about Maryland Sound, and it's a big company. Yeah. They do all the presidential inaugurations. They have these huge custom-built towers for putting speakers on, and they do uh, New Year's Eve mm-hmm. in New York City. So for people who don't know Maryland Sound, can you talk a little bit about what they do? Yeah. Uh, so Maryland Sound's been around for quite some time. I, I Off the top of my head, I want to say the 60s, somewhere in that range. Um, back in the 70s, 80s, and even early 90s, they were uh, one of the larger touring houses on the East Coast, you know, not big as Claire and some of the others. Um, and a lot of big tours, everything from, you know, Floyd's Momentary Lapse of Reason tour to uh, Billy Ray Cyrus to Kenny G to just all kinds of different artists have come through. through okay, so there. they're doing Concert Sound. They're doing a lot of tours. Is, is that kind of their bread and butter? Or are they also doing a lot of these corporate events for the, and out, outside events? Yeah, for the longest time, it was a bread and butter. And then there was a shift 
uh, in the early 2000s of getting into the more industrial stuff. So they were doing um, gravity games, which is kind of like X Games, but it travels. Uh, and it eventually became the Do Action Sports Tour. Uh, so you got motocross and BMX and skateboarding, and uh, in the wintertime, it's you know it's it's um, snowboarding and stuff like that. Um, so I, w- I would do runs with them. It's like five cities across the country, uh, and that's where like those poles come in, come in place. Uh, or they got into uh, Times Square New Year's Eve. In fact, they were the only sound company to ever do Times Square New Year's Eve because prior to them, uh, there wasn't sound in the square. And I forget what the year is. Um, for the longest time, the city thought um, that they would actually create more ruckus. And in fact, uh, they, they, they wanted the crowds to get too rowdy. Mm-hmm. And it actually had the uh, the opposite effect. It actually kept the crowds more calm once they could hear what was going on okay. and, and be a part of it. Sure. Um, so having, you know, having those outdoor gigs, um, they had the XFL, uh, if you remember those days where that was much more of a party atmosphere of the NFL, uh, the WWE, I believe ran. And so they needed, you know, again, these, you know, these poles to put in stadiums and hang line arrays and hang speakers, uh, and then inauguration, you know, where they do audio from all the way from the Capitol building all the way down to the white house. They do. All right. I should have said presidential inauguration. Yes. That makes more sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so uh, I got to do a lot of those at Times Square New Year's Eve, um, everything from being the front of house system tech uh, to monitors on one of the stages. Um, the inauguration, I've done the last four inaugurations as one of the system techs. Okay. Um, and that, from my understanding, there must be many system techs because there are all these, I don't know to call them, like pods, sections of sound. So you were probably responsible for like several towers or something, right? Yeah. Uh, on the inauguration, yeah. So you have um, the lead audio engineer, Pat Paul's Tell, who's a, a pretty well-known you know, engineer. Yeah. So then there's a front of house system tech. And then he kind of he has to live in front of the house because there's just so much going on. Uh, and we have uh, some guys that basically take care of all the speakers that are on the lawn. Uh, and out to our delay worlds because we we delay out to the start of the mall, which is a you know pretty far if you actually look at the map. Um, and then I handle everything on the stage the stage side. So there's a couple hundred speakers that are from um, all on the stage side for fullback. Okay. Um, and so we we they start loading in on like the the second of January. And the show is, I think, the twenty eighth of January. So you wow. spent you spent about two weeks. It's about it's about two weeks of loading in wow. and running cable and testing and tuning and then you know, there's rehearsals and stuff involved. Um, and uh, the different years, I've had slightly various roles on show days. You know, the one year uh, uh, President Obama's first inauguration, I was helping out Yo Yo Ma and Ipsak Perlman. They were playing up up in the top where the choir is, and so I was kind of their handlers and getting their mics in place. And then uh, this past year, I was the comms guy on the inside. So I was in command center with, you know, generals and all kinds of stuff who were on comm calling the show and uh, making sure I, I mic'd up the two Chief Justice uh, John Roberts uh, and uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. They do the oath signing in, so we put a lava on them, so I got to mic them up before the mm-hmm. before the show. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a pretty pretty unique event for sure. Why wouldn't they use you in the same position both times? It seems like they would think, okay, Chris did this last time, so he knows all about it. Well, I, I, the, the, all the wiring and all the speakers from all the fullback perspective, I did that every time. Okay. Um, for the first three years, I handled um, the choir the choir loft um, and any bands that were happening up there. Um, and then uh, I, the guy who used to do the comms no longer worked for them. And so I ended up taking that over this past time. Okay, so it. it was a change in personnel. So you got the job there by one of your professors recommending you, if I want to get a job at Maryland Sound and I want to work on these kind of events, what should I do? That's, that's always a tough one. People, you know, you know how, do, how, do, how do you get in? You know, and uh, it's, uh, 
you know, there's a couple guys at Maryland Sound who you just you just call up and you're persistent and say, hey, you know, I want to do this. Uh, you know, a lot of it, I think, has to do with just your attitude, you know, and your, and your work ethic. You know, nowadays, work ethic is uh, a thing that's uh, a thing of the past, it feels like. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, also I, I feel I could probably speak better to say maybe where I'm at now at IMS um, is a lot of times if I have a guy who's maybe newer and greener, because I think that's kind of how you would, you're, you're saying if I'm kind of newer to the industry, you know, not a seasoned person who knows what I'm doing, um, a lot of times we'll refer them to some of the local labor companies. And, you know, you know, hey, you know, work with uh, said local you know, labor company, you know, who we use all the time for our shows. And that way you can learn our system, learn our cables, um, learn signal flow, things like that. And then, you know, I'm more inclined to bring you along because I've seen your work ethic. You know, I can see you, you know, because as a company, you don't always have the space to bring in a, a green person right away. Mm-hmm. You know, so you need to have them mature a little bit. But if you can mature them in a labor pool that you work with all the time, they're working with your gear, they get to know your gear, I'm much more likely to bring you in if you already know my stuff you know my clients i've seen your you know uh, especially in now in corporate world you know you can know signal flow and 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 mix your ass off but if you can't you know stand in front of a ceo and put a lob down his shirt and speak to him uh you know it's gonna be hard for you to work for me (laughs) so maybe a good approach would be if if i want to work with maryland sound i might reach out to them and say what labor bookers do you work with can you refer me to them and maybe start out in that path. And then when I get back in touch with Marilyn Sound, I can say, hey, I've been working with these guys. We did these shows. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. No, and, and networking is key, like anything. I mean, you know, it's all in who you know. So if you know some guys that, you know, have, have worked with you uh, and can refer to you, I mean, you know, if you know if you, if, you know, if you came to town for the first time and said, hey, I'd like to work for you, the first thing I'd be doing is looking to see who you're connected with on LinkedIn or, or else or who I know that already knows you and, and word of mouth. I'm going to trust if I get two people who have worked with you before that I trust. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weigh that heavy into how they feel your work ethic is and your personality and your skills and, and stuff like that. So connect Maryland Sound to Tears for Fears. Um, so I had been, uh, you know, touring for a few years with them. They, they landed the account, and so I got asked to be uh, the monitor engineer. I did about a year and a half with Josh Groban, uh, first as a monitor tech and crew chief, um, and then the last six months of that, um, I was his monitor engineer. The engineer needed a break. Tears for Fears, where are they from? They are from Bath. Okay. And... They were going on tour. They were coming to the U.S. and they said we need to. And I guess their tour manager said we need to get a production company. Yeah, and also well, actually, their tour the tour manager that they had hired um, is uh, his name is Todd Goldstein, and he is the son of the owner at Maryland Sound. Um, and so yeah, so they partnered with Maryland Sound, uh, and so he was tour managing slash doing front of house. Um, and yeah, so that's how the partnership started so, there. So I'm I'm assuming Maryland probably. Sound probably started handling um, their tour for the U.S., but then maybe went global after that. Yeah. So yeah. So we did because uh, you did international tours with them. Yeah. Right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So we did like a West Coast run of like wineries and um, uh, House of Blues and type type places, amphitheaters, um, and then yeah, we went international uh, overseas. Um, we brought, um, a, f- a few pieces of gear with us, but most of it was local. So at that point, Tears of Fears was kind of just contracting me through Maryland Sound. Okay. 
And and so talk to me about the work. You were mixing inner monitors. Um, what total did you have? What total outputs did you have coming from your board? Uh, let's see. Uh, one, two, three, four. I had like f- five or six guys on stage. Okay. Uh, and then um, two two techs, a drum tech and a guitar tech. And all, all ears. So no, no, no wedges. Um, was know. it super intense? Like, do you have a million cues and you're like adjusting things for every song? Or is do they kind of, once they get in a, a good spot, they can kind of just do the whole show? Um, I was, I did have a, I did have a different scene for each song. Um, it wasn't too cue intensive, uh, but enough, di- enough things change from song to song. Um, you know, uh, Kurt and Roland, the two, the two singers, um, each of them have their own songs that they lead. And so you have to treat it a little bit differently for that. Um, or they have, you know, Kurt will change his bass from song to song, and so I might, you know, have some adjustments for that. Um, and then, uh, I, you know, I was making, um, I would do some delay and stuff like that, um, depending on what the song required. Um, and so, you know, I had changes for that as well. Okay. So you worked with them for four years. Um, I actually, I, I did two runs with them. Okay. Uh, so it was spread out across about a year and a half. Uh, it, I, uh, I was supposed to do another uh, U.S. run and then a South America run, and that was right at the point when I was transitioning to leave um, to m- move to, to Philadelphia area. Okay, so this was – you talked to me about this. This was starting a family, right? Yeah, so okay. um, in the midst of touring, um, you know, I had my, my first daughter, uh, and so about two years um, into, uh, into her being around uh, – you know, it was time to make a move to be home more for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and my wife wanted to get back uh, to the Philly area, which is where she's from. Um, and so, yeah, so I started looking for, you know, a different a different job up in the Philly area as opposed to where I was at. So I, I didn't necessarily want to leave um, touring um, at Maryland Sound. I was very happy. I was starting to make a name for myself uh, as a monitor engineer. And so it was it was a tough transition, but it was it was worth it for the, you know, for the family. Sure. IMS mostly does corporate events, right? Correct. Okay. Um, you had done corporate events before, but now this was going to be your kind of your full-time gig and ending up eventually as director of audio, you are uh, responsible for leading teams, uh, designing systems, meeting with clients. Did you know how to do all that stuff already? <laughs> um, it was definitely a change. Uh, you know, when I was looking to move, I wasn't looking for corporate work yet, for, you know, per se. I was looking at some of the regional sound companies. You know, I wanted to still want to do sound. You know, it's my passion in life. Um, and, uh, and a mentor of mine found IMS and was like, hey, check these guys out. I'm not sure who they are. And so I did, and you know they were they were offering a full time position, whereas all the other people were only offering freelance. Because at the time, you know, it was two thousand nine, two thousand ten. It was an awful time to be looking for a job, gotcha. and um, I wasn't going to move on a freelance basis. The type of corporate work was different, uh, but a lot of principles still apply. Um, and since I had mostly done monitor work and system tech work, and a lot of systems had already been designed for me, it was a new ball game for me being responsible of you know. Uh, quoting and specking a show with production managers and deciding, you know, how many speakers to put on the show and where exactly could put them and how to hang them. Um, that was slightly different than my experience at, you know, I was at Maryland Sound. So it was definitely a learning curve. Uh, I had never managed uh, actual employees under me. I've managed, you know, stagehands and stuff like that at cruise. For, um, yeah, for days like, or tours. At tours, yeah. Sure. So, I mean, like, on Groban, I was the lead audio uh, tech. And so, you know, I was responsible for the 10-plus stagehands we would get every day and, and roles and responsibilities. So, I had experience managing people, just not in the same the same way. 
We've talked about your experience some, and I'm sure there's some things we skipped over, but I would love to get into talking about some more technical stuff. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about why you're here. So <laughs> you're not just visiting Minneapolis. Uh, you're here working on a show, and a show that we actually worked on together. Correct. Pretty big show. And we already discussed that we can't talk about who the client is, but that's not really even that important, because what we're interested in is sort of like the system that was set up. Right. So we were at the... Um, Minneapolis Convention Center, which is a huge space. I've never worked there before. There's a big hall downstairs. There's four huge connected halls upstairs. And you said you had measured the size of it? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I me- well the, the size of our general session uh, was a uh, seated area. was about 350 feet deep by about 250 feet wide is our seated area. The room is bigger than that. Uh, so it's about, it's about 9,000 people or so is, is the seated area of the general session that, I was work- that I'm working in. Okay. You did the design for everything. Correct. The audio design. While I was there, I almost never saw you because while you were setting up upstairs for this huge general session, I was downstairs in a smaller room working on some kind of like an introductory event, more of like a cultural event. Yep. There was some music and presentations and it was actually pretty fun. So you and I didn't actually see each other you and I didn't see each other that much, but um, we worked together some and I saw your setup. So Let's talk about the bigger event, the general session first. Is there anything that that you want to talk about that you thought, this was a big challenge, I don't know how it's going to work, and then get actually getting into the room and putting speakers up, and, and you were at a rehearsal today and you heard the sound. What what comes to mind for you that you want to share on that? My, well, my biggest concern going into it, which is how enormous the space is and not knowing uh, what kind of reflections and reverberant type space it was going to be. There's these giant domes that have a 90 foot peak in the center. So giant metal domes on top of concrete floors. and Yes, best case scenario if you don't yeah. audio. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and they put in carpet, but it's a super thin carpet. So. Yeah, no, they're putting some carpet in aisles uh, and, 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 uh, and padded sheet, uh, p- padded uh, chairs mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and then, you know, people ultimately but um uh yeah so that was my biggest concern going into it and surprisingly the room is pretty dead you know you heard it too i mean uh, i expected to be much more reflections in there there's some weird stuff that happens in the center of the dome that's to be expected uh some uh you know you, you clap your hands and it you know flutters like crazy for a couple seconds when when designing the system i wanted to make sure that i wasn't uh you know spraying audio at any places that weren't intentional sure. right i mean that's that's kind of what we do to begin with anyway but uh um, so I, I, fl- I flew my arrays, you know, you know, higher than I, I would normally get the chance to, given the ceiling of the height, uh, the height of the ceiling, uh, so that you know, my front, my first row, I'm, my bottom box is almost pointing straight down. Yeah. So my my goal was to get the PA as far away from the stage as possible, but still, you know, be the first row still being in that main coverage. Uh, also, to give me the most, you know, game before feedback on the podium, and. Um, um, so yeah, so I got as wide and uh, as wide and far down stage as I could, um, which led me to having a center hang. So I had a left, right, center hang, uh, and then some outfills for some seating that's directly left and right of the stage. Um, and then beyond that, you know, as we kind of discussed on site, um, I don't like throwing more than 100, 150 feet or so if, if I can avoid it. Um, so that kind of established where my next delay line was going to be. Uh, and then I tried to make sure that my seam, uh, between the two, uh, would happen in an aisle so that if, you know, if I can't get that seam great, um, then, you know, it's landing in an aisle, not where seating is. Um, so I, I still overlap them about 20 feet or so. So you do have a transition. Um, but I really tried to, you know, the, the difference in doing maybe delay or relay. 
right? Um, and so I treated it more as a relay as opposed to delay. So it sounds like just reminding everyone kind of your goal here to only put sound where there's people. So you said, let me do relay speakers and I can use a steeper vertical angle. And so I'm not just playing into the back. I'm not playing into walls and I, I can really get more control over it, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. No, and, and, and it worked out really well. So, I mean, you know, once you're here in the bottom box of the delay, um, it's hard to tell that you're actually here in the front enough to bring your image forward, um, but not enough to really, you know, de- you know degrade and, and, and mess with it. Uh, and to do that for one more set of delays as well. And there's bleacher seating in the back. So it worked out uh, surprisingly well. And um, it made for easy tuning, you know, when, when, when tuning time came. You should explain the difference between delay and relay speakers. Uh, a delay would be, you know, I would take the mains and I would aim, you know, um, as much of the audience as I could get. Um, and then you're using, um, you're de- you know, delaying your delays uh, and uh, just to help them along uh, as opposed to relay being, you know, I'm covering this section with these speakers, the next section with it, this set of speakers, you know, and, and so on. Sure. I think you can think about relay speakers more like a parade route might be a way yeah. to think about it. And and I think the the key is isolation, right? Like a delay speaker, you're never in complete isolation. You still hear the mains, but a relay speaker, at some point, you'll be in isolation and potentially not hear the mains at all. Yeah, and and, and for your benefit too, you know, um, it's it's a lot easier to control. Um, and again, you're not having to. Uh, have as crazy shading and stuff on your mains that you know i'm not trying to throw to the back of the room you know 350 feet away uh, and have my you know have to shade my bottom box by 10 db because of that sure so i had a couple specific questions things i saw you doing um Oh, you got this smart on wheels? I did. <laughs> so, so talk about that. Yeah, so, you know, on a gig like this, we have the luxury of having uh, a day or so to, or about half a day or so to tune. Okay. You know, whereas, you know, a typical gig, you're lucky if you get 20 minutes. Sure. <laughs> so uh, with my CL5 packages, uh, my front of house rack has um, RI8 and R08 in it and switches. Uh, those are Dante... IO yes for the CL5. Yep. Okay. Um, so we use that as our preamps into Smart. Uh, Dante right into right into Smart. Uh, we, I was using four four microphones for for an average. And then I, I put like a 42-inch AV cart right next to it because I had three computers. Mm-hmm. I had one running smart, uh, one for our system processor, and the other for the amps. Okay. And that way, uh, as we rolled along the floor, uh, I could just roll those together where we were, and I had all three computers, uh, and I had my I.O., and I had my network because, you know, the switches in there, so that's how I can get to my processor and I, how I can get to um, the amps. So you've got Audio Architect to control your... BSS Blue 806, yeah. And then what are you using to control the amps? Um, performance manager because they were they were um, they're crown um, iDex. Okay, so you got that on wheels, and the reason you got that on wheels is so that you can actually be in the space that you're tuning, right, and hear the changes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Especially given the time and given the space, I wanted to just be out where the mics were, and so I'm, I'm hearing every little change as opposed to, you know, uh, watching smart, you know, watching some lines, make some changes, go out, listen to it, come back. I didn't want to be tethered to front of house. You know, I, w- I wanted to be able to be able to be out in a room, walk around as you make changes. You know, hit bypass you know unbypass eqs back and forth so i can i can hear it right then what the changes are and uh you know uh i was already walking enough on this gig to go back and forth the front of house for this would have been even more miles (laughs) could you potentially do that wirelessly with smart on a remote client and some is there some way to get your other control software audio architect wireless 
I guess you could, um, but it's just not necessary given that, you know, I have my preamps there anyway, and so um, it would be much, much easier just to have everything hardwired, not to worry about any okay. wireless potential lag of issues or anything. We should take a quick detour here and talk about you're really into education. So you told me you've taken the smart class three or four times. Four times. Four yeah. times. And you are really active in the smart users group. Continuing education is, um, at least in, 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 in sound, is uh, I, I never want to stop learning. You know, I, I feel like if you, the day you stop learning, you're only mo- moving yourself moving yourself back. And so um, I, I push myself to learn new things. Um, you know, one of the things that you and I had talked about earlier was uh, when I was at Maryland Sound, I had, I had all these mentors to work under and guys that have been doing it for 20 years or more. And, and so you can pick their brain, right? And then when I left, uh, and I was still pushing myself then to learn things. You know, I remember buying my first computer and, you know, downloading every uh, program for every amplifier and pushing every button in there and just, you know, pulling every piece of gear off the shelf and pushing every button I could and learning things. Uh, when I left there uh, and I kind of became, you know, the guy as opposed to having the mentors there, uh, I really had to push myself to learn more. And, and it was on me now to do the learning. So whether it be, you know, online learning, whether it be classes, doing SynodCon, Smart, um, you know, going to Infocom, things like that. Uh, yeah, I, I have a passion to learn and perfect my craft uh, more and more all the time. So I think a lot of other people are in that boat. I mean, there are people who are either geographically, financially time limited that maybe are not going to go to university or otherwise have resources, opportunities to do a thing. So for other people who are learning on their own, do you want to give a couple more recommendations? I mean, obviously you recommend the rational acoustics classes for smart um, what else do you want to recommend? Uh, you know, even not just the classes, um, their, their, uh, their manual is actually a killer resource uh, for, for uh, sound system um, design and tuning. You know, it, it, their, their manual is a lot like their class in that the first half of the class is just learning about how sound works and how speakers work. And, you know, because if you don't understand that, then as quickly the lines on the screens uh, don't mean anything. Uh, so that's a good source. Um, you know, <laughs> I recommend your podcast, of course. Oh, um, and uh, um, uh, SynodCon is definitely something I recommend. You can do it online and then in, tra- you know, in person. Uh, I definitely recommend that. You've done both online and in person. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's been it's been great. There's so many uh, blogs and resources, um, you know, Front of House Magazine, Pro Sound Web, all of those. Uh, get into all those forums. I mean, there's so many smart people out there. Um, that are eager and willing to share their knowledge, just got to ask the questions. Uh, there's so many user groups on Facebook, you know, like the Smart Group, um, and many others that, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I look at it as um, I enjoy uh, teaching people things and telling people. So people ask me how to do this. I'm not trying to keep trade secrets here or anything like this. You know, we're, we're all in this together to make sound better for everyone. <laughs> you know, um, and. Um, so yeah, so it's just just ask. There's definitely people who are willing to um, kind of help you along. Cool. Um, I'm about to take my first rational acoustics class this month. We're in July now, so nice. I'm excited about that. Which instructor? Uh, Jamie. Nice, Jamie Anderson. And I have done one of the online Synod classes, um, and that was good. I want to do some more, and I have not done anything in person with Pat Brown, but I one of my students has, and he said it was great, so That's I would love to do phenomenal. one of those. Okay, cool. 
Cool. So back to the general session. Um, we talked about smart on wheels. What about, tell me about the podium cat snake. Why do you need that? Why are there so many podiums? So in this show, we have 30 lecterns across the floor. Okay. Uh, uh, it is a uh, very active uh, voting meeting. Um, and so they have to weigh in and vote from across the floor in different uh, parts of the floor. Um so to distribute or receive, I should say, all those microphones, instead of running X, you know, individual XLRs to all these different places, um, I broke it up in zones. And so I used um, sound tools, which is by rats or you know, uh, rat sound tools, uh, cat snake okay. uh, or cat snakes, multiple. Um, and so I would do like two cat snakes uh, in like each zone and then kind of branch out from there. Um, so uh, and then I had a cat rack at front of house receiving all of those ether cons. Uh, and so it, it really, a lot of it was just kind of cutting down on um, cable uh, and cable paths uh, and just making it uh, more efficient for, for load and load out. And how is your front of house mixer handling all of those inputs? Are they just leaving them open somehow? I mean, they can't see no, the people it's, coming No, it, it, it's all manual. I mean, there, there's a person on comm who's calling which, which lectern at which time. And oh, so, so he's, oh, because they're calling them to speak next uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's there, there's a system in place to know who's going to come from where. So it's not it's not just going to be any microphone anywhere. No, there's times where it can be a little chaotic, but okay. uh, but there's at least someone at least attempting to call. And we have twelve robotic cameras hanging that they can kind of see all around the area. You can kind of see what's going on. Okay. Um, and so yeah, we have a CL five for the main desk, and then a QL five as a sidecar, if you will. The the QL five just handles all of the um, all the floor lecterns, so you know one through thirty, you know, all you know all on the top layer there and he can just on off on off which you know what channel it pops up and then he has the rest of his desk in front of him and does that come then as pre-mix as a submix into the cl5 yes okay okay so let's talk about my event i was down in hall a i learned a lot on this event one thing you helped me with was dante troubleshooting which i don't have a lot of experience with uh so i got into some trouble i remember everything was working fine until i plugged in my ulxd mics and then everything disappeared and i was like <laughs> Chris, please come help. <laughs> so what was the tip that you gave me? Well, the first thing I asked you was I said, what, what, what did you plug in that was different? <laughs> yeah. What did you plug in last? And I was like, these mics, what? No, uh, my, you know, yes. It, nowadays, audio engineers also need to be IT nerds as well. Dante troubleshooting, my first go-to when I ever have issues with Dante is just to unplug secondary. Uh, it's very easy and common to, uh, you know, cross your primary, secondary, or just, you know, what's, you know, it's a, uh, least common denominator. Let's, let's cut out, uh, you know, a possible area. And as soon as we pulled secondary, we realized that, oh, you know, the, the issue resolved itself, which then led to realizing that I guess you had the, um, Oh, no, I think you had secondary and primary backwards on the ULXDs themselves, yep. which was you know, th throwing things off. So, Right. So when you run a star topology um, on the Dante network, then you can have redundant audio. Yes. So then you have, so on the back of ULXD, for example, are all Dante equipment, right? There's a primary and a secondary. Most. Uh, some, some stuff only has a primary, but most. Yeah. Okay. So then you can have redundant audio and a backup, and I guess that just automatically switches if something disappears. Um, right, so I had crossed those, and if you get those crossed, it gets confused, and not every device was then showing up in the Dante controller. Right, so we pulled the secondary connections, that fixed it, plugging them back in, broke it again, and then I realized that I had to change the ULXD configuration to redundant audio. It was on switch, switch. and I had to change so, it to a different configuration. Yeah, and in Dante, if you do switch, uh, if you don't, if you don't have a switch, 
um, then you can actually loop through. You come into primary, out of secondary, into the primary of the next unit, and continue on. Uh, but then you don't have um, any fallover if you do lose your primary line. So after that, once I got everything configured, never had any more problems. Yep. So I don't know if it was switching back and forth between primary and secondary, but it worked the whole time. It shouldn't switch unless you lose your primary. ask you about your observations of the way I work. You came down while I was doing part of the optimization. So my system was basically just uh, eight copies of the same array. Yeah, it was in, so it was in the round. Right. Right. So Stage we had, in the round. We had eight arrays going all the way around it of some VRX 932 LA1. And um, it, I was going through a simple, pretty simple process of just measuring vertical top on axis and vertical bottom of each array. But I did every array going all the way around and the project manager kept asking me a couple of times, like, are you still doing that? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to check every <laughs> he array. Also, he also asked me, oh, okay. he's, like, he's like, all I've heard is paint noise all day. Does this guy know what he's yeah. doing? <laughs> so this was also a special show for me, too, because of the extra time that we had, right. right? Like, I also had, I think, almost half a day to do all this stuff. If I didn't have half a day, I, you know, it wouldn't have been hours of pink noise. It right. would have been measuring maybe like one array in the second one and then maybe copy everything to the other sides and then just run around and listen real quick or something like that. But since I had time, I would measure every one. So back to my question, you had some questions for me and you probably had some observations. Um, so what were some of the things you thought about the way I worked that we could talk about? Yeah. So uh, first observation was just obviously you're very methodical and and what you're going to do. Uh, you know, I had given you some paperwork on, you know, at least my layout and, and design ahead of time. Uh, and then I noticed you sent me, you made your own wiring diagram. And uh, so to take the time to go do all that is very, uh, was, was a good observation of, hey, this guy's you know, A, taking it seriously uh, and B, just very methodical and making sure things are planned out well. So that was, that was good. Okay. From the tuning side, um, so I asked you, um, you had your number one mic as your furthest away mm -hmm. mic and like number three or four was, was your closest. Uh, and I asked you why. And you said, oh, well, you know, number one being like top of the array versus four being at the bottom of the array. Um, which I thought, okay, that, that makes sense. It's interesting. Um, and then I tried to do that upstairs because I typically do it the other way just from my first mic is down, you know, uh, the closest and it was back. And I learned that um, you probably shouldn't change your process if you've been doing it for a, for a long time. Okay. <laughs> because <laughs> as we're moving to each zone, I, uh, I kept getting myself confused of which mic was going where. And sure. uh, yeah, so um, yeah, the, the the theory the theory makes sense, I guess, from a workflow if you're used to it. Um, but uh, I was used to it the other way. So okay. um, yeah, not a right, wrong, or different, just workflow. Sure. Um, uh, and then, you know, we discussed, uh, so you were doing ground plane measurements because, right. you know, similar situation of all concrete floor um, and uh, big metal ceiling and a big, big and, square room. And at the time, there were no seats in my room. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so I asked, hey, just like curiosity, why, you know, why are you doing um, ground plane versus, you know, putting it at, say, ear height when... Um, and, and so what, what was your response when I asked you that? Right. So the simple answer that I have for that is that um, I feel like measuring a head height in a room like that is for like an advanced operator. <laughs> and I still feel like I'm kind of a novice when it comes to getting good data and just looking at the screen and knowing what to do. 
if I look at the screen and I don't know what to do, then something has to change. Right. I either need to change the way I'm getting the data or I need to get someone else's opinion or I need to think about it more or whatever. So when I'm thinking about the most efficient, fastest way to get from like point A to point B, I'm thinking, you know what? I might start at head height. And then if there's like a lot of reflections and I'm getting really low coherence and then I'm not getting data that I can take action on, then I'm going to move to ground plane. So then in most situations, especially like that, I'll just skip straight to ground plane because <laughs> I know like I don't want to go through those steps of like trying to figure it out. And so, so yeah, that was my answer is that I was like, maybe when I'm a little bit more experienced, I'll switch to head height. Yeah. So, and, and my take on that is, you know, I, I, you know, the floor is a factor for, for the hearing, you know, sure. uh, for, for humans. And so, um, so I, so I like measuring a head height and, you know, I, I see where you're coming from on, you know, maybe a little harder to see through, uh, through the trace and through the coherence and all that and kind of weigh out, you know, what is or isn't the floor. And, um, but, you know, upstairs when we, we tuned, we, we did it at head height. Um, and it, it, it didn't, it wasn't that bad in my opinion, but I guess, I, I guess I have been tuning for, you know, a little, little bit of a while. So I should have done a comparison so I could show people. Yeah. Like, here's what the head height would have looked like. Here's what the ground. I didn't. I went straight to ground plane and, um, you know, I think there's ways to get around that. So so just to be clear, you and I both know that the best way to do it is at head height. Like, yeah. that's how you should practice. That's the best way to do it because that's where people's heads are. And that will give you more realistic data. And you should, you should practice that way. And I think what can also help, whether you're going to do ground plane or head height, but especially if you're doing head height, is doing more than one measurement, right? Yeah. Doing multiple measurements and start looking for those global trends yeah. instead of just like, here's this comb filter we found. Let's EQ it. So one of the first observations I had, too, is the way you're looking at your trace. You had your your target trace of, you know, hey, this is a corporate show. Here's my target trace I'm going for. Um, and you were lining that up with, like, the peaks across the trace as opposed to uh, I, I've kind of been taught and have always looked um, at the median of, of, the, of the trace itself. Oh, okay. So that was a different sure. observation of... Uh, I'm used to trying to find, you know, the, the middle through, through the trace. You know, so the middle would be, like... Maybe the middle, if you're looking at like the peaks and the valleys. So if you're thinking about uh, the ripple, right. you could call it. You're looking through the middle of the ripple. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so again, uh, um, and what, what was your explanation though on that though? That why you were going for the top of uh, the trace as opposed to say the median of the of the trace? Yeah, because the the tops are the survivors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oftentimes, uh, you'll see that if you take the coherence blanking slider and drag it all the way up, um, the pieces that are left at the top are um, the peaks. Okay. Visually, also, that's just easier for me. I'll try to line things up there. And so, like, especially when I'm getting set up and I'm sitting on my microphone preamp so that the trace kind of shows up where I want it to against the target trace, I'll make the peaks line up there. That's another one of those things where that would probably be hard for you to switch right now since you've right. been training exactly. to do in the middle. Yeah. No, yeah. And so, and another observation, I guess, I, because I work on the same speakers often, um, uh, because I, you know, inventory that I work with, I'm not a freelancer. Um, I, uh, I probably would have uh, been, um, it's not a negative way, a little quicker and maybe a little bit more aggressive on some of the EQ. Sure. Uh, just because, hey, I know I'm going to kind of scoop here, here, and here almost all the time because that's just what these boxes do, right? Um, and uh, and also, I'm so used to only having such limited time, mm -hmm. right? But we had the time to 
sit there and go, okay, yeah. let's try half octave. Let's try, let's try, you know, let's try two dB down. No, let's try three dB. You know, you know, we had time to like A, B and do this thing. So uh, again, it was an anomaly of the amount of time we had to, to, to work. Yeah, that was pretty cool. We, we had some time to do, actually do some listening tests and see what does this filter sound like in and out? And that's also things that sometimes you can't do when you're alone as well. Mm-hmm. So um, like we found some places and we wanted to see like, does this have a significant effect if I stand here and if I stand here? Um, so yeah, that's definitely a benefit of if you have more experience just measuring in general, but then even if you have more experience measuring a speaker and a speaker in a room, you see that trace and you you just know what to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it was funny. I was saying things like, maybe we should put a filter here at 2K. And you're like, yeah, we always do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yes. That was a good contrast. And it also makes me think that depending on the amount of time, it would have been different too. Like if I was on my own and I'd never measured the box before and I never measured this room before, it would have been like, okay, that's good enough probably. And we'll move on. You and I went back and forth a little bit on it was just, um, uh, you know, you don't always get to control where the subs are going to go. Right. Right. Um, And so when I designed it, um, uh, you know, th- we didn't know if the stage was going to be tall enough for the state subs to go underneath, right? So it's a less than ideal of a scenario. Or, you know, I might not be able to do end fire or center based sub- subs. You know, when I was in Miami, I-, I happened to have almost 20 feet behind the stage. And so I could line up a whole end fire to center of the room to be best case scenario. But then in the next day, uh, the stage is up against the wall and you have nothing, you know, and you can't put subs down in front because there's, you know, DSMs. And so I have to do a split left, right sub, even though it's not the best case scenario, it's what you have to work with. And so, you know, you make your best out of each of those scenarios. And, I, and that's what you ended up doing is that, you know, I had, I had four cornered the subs because it was in the round and at least trying to disperse it some, even though the, knowing there's going to be cancellations and you're like, well, Hey, can I, you know, do I have free reign to do what I want here? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I should say subs are a hot topic. Everybody has, it's like a trigger word for every sound engineer. And everyone kind of has their own preconceived ideas about what where subs should go and how they sound best. And, you know, they've got that feel and that throw and that pump. You know, there's all these words. The more I do shows with other people, I realize that it's really just different tools, mm-hmm. right? And, and you get these different results. So... I looked at your design and I was like, from what I know, working in rooms, this is actually going to be fine. But if I get the chance, (laughs) if the stage is tall enough. uh, So the the funny part of the story is that I thought I wasn't going to have the chance because they said the stage is 18 inches. And I was like, okay, great. I'll just leave them where they are. It's fine. But then they installed the stage and I didn't notice. And I walked over and I was like, oh, they barely slide under there. So I had a little bit of time left (laughs) one day and nobody, well, no, I did have a little bit of help. But what we did was we pushed them underneath uh, with our feet, and we put on some little uh, some little pieces of cardboard so they would actually slide. Nice. And then crawled under there and got them into place and plugged them in. The second part of the story that's funny about all the work we went to build the TM array under say so that that was the thing I wanted to build a TM array. It's the only thing I know of that is appropriate for in the round. In the round, yeah. Straight out of the Bob McCarthy book, uh, working with Metallica. So the second part, the second part that's funny about this story is that then after I turned them on, I realized that there was enough power that I could do the whole show with one sub. <laughs> so 
I said, this is silly. I'm trying to make this thing work that I've never worked, never used before. Let's go with the simpler solution. So I went back under there, unplugged three of them, pushed one into the center and did the show with that. The challenge came then when the DJ came out and and I didn't have him there for a rehearsal. So the DJ had already started and he was not super happy with it. And he was like, the loan doesn't give me that punch that I want. And so I knew several things in my head right away. He's used to working in smaller venues. He's not obviously not used to doing DJ events like this in a giant concrete box, like smaller rooms, different systems, probably left, right subs, that kind of thing. At that moment, I wish I wished we had had a rehearsal moment where I could have like done the EQ with him and been like, is this the sound you like? Is this mm-hmm. how... I knew there were several things I didn't understand about what he wanted. And I knew that maybe I wouldn't be able to give it to him. But I still told him like, let me see if I can work on it. So I turned on another sub to see if more, just more energy was enough. And that kind of made it worse. What I realized is that I think for this event, I probably should have had a second solution for the DJ to kind of make him happy, which would have been like left, right subs out front, or maybe a line in front but definitely where he could see it, because it was a problem for him that he couldn't see it. Uh, and it was also a problem for him that he didn't have direct sound. So all that was under him, and maybe that was the best spot for alignment for me, like he would never hear any direct sound from the subs until it like came out from under the stage back around to him somehow. So I feel like I kind of learned my lesson there, because that was it ended up working great for the rest of the show, but for the DJ... All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces. What's in your work bag? What do you take to gigs? My backpack that I carry with me, um, I have, uh, you know, headphones, both IEMs and large cans, um, a DI, my Mac, um, Sharpies, of course, Cubox. Nowadays, you have to carry a bag of dongles because Mac. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, so I have a you know bag of dongles, of course, bag of USB sticks. Uh, I love my GoPro. I love taking pics, you know, with my with my GoPro. Um, and then um, you know I have a Pelican that has the tools that everyone else has. Uh, but uh, I carry a Shure 55 as my voice of God slash talkback mic, uh, mostly to. I've uh, seen that. That's cute. Mostly to. Uh, <laughs> mostly, to, it, it's a staple of most of my pictures when I take my console pictures. Uh, okay. But uh, it's mostly just to amuse myself because why not? Sure. Uh, and other people get a kick out of it too. So. So, Chris, looking back on your career so far, what is the one of the best decisions you've made to get more of the work that you really love? So two two instances come to mind, both of which were at Maryland Sound. Um, one was when I kind of first started. Uh, so we, as I started there, I was just kind of a grunt in the warehouse in Sweepland, as we called it, which is where we do all our tests and tune and a sweep of the speakers and make sure all the drivers are working properly and we fix you know fix speakers, right? Um, and so, but you know, I wanted to get out on shows. Um, and so I remember uh, a show was about to go out that weekend. Um, and like, I, I want to get on it cause I want to get on more shows, but you know, prior to that, I hadn't really flown line arrays and stuff like that. So the, t- uh, the other engineers weren't going to take me out cause I wasn't as experienced. It's like, well, I have to get experience. It's so 22. I have to get experience. Right. So how am I going to do this? Um, but I know how to patch a stage. I can run wires, all that stuff. 
Um, so I just, I volunteered, like, Hey, can I, you know, I know you already have the positions filled, but can I come along this gig and be, you know, alongside the stage jammer and helping, helping the front of house engineer and, and loading in. And, you know, I, I don't care if you pay me, I'm just going to, I just want to come along. And so Did I you call him the stage jammer, stage jammer. What's that? Stage jammer, uh, this is a term we had for, um, uh, the guy who is patching the stage, you know, doing wedges, or, you know, you're, you're jamming the stage together. I don't know. It was, that, it. It was just a, That's uh, cool. uh, yeah, I don't know if it was MSI thing, East coast thing, but yeah, stage jammer. Um, and um, so, so I did. I, it was uh, I'll never forget the gig. It was Smokey Robinson and Gladys Knight. Oh wow! Um, and uh, so, first off, you know, great artist, right? Um, and uh, and I actually got a lot of flack from some of the like some of the guys there, like, oh, you know, why are you working for free? Why are you doing this? This is stupid. Sure. You know, like they're just they're just going to take advantage of you. Um, and I'm like, no, like you know, I want to do this. I want to be out here more. And I'll never forget um, our truck driver at the time. We had like a full time truck driver, and he's like, he's like, you guys are all laughing. He's like, yeah, one day you're all gonna work for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was kind of ironic because so um, that wasn't necessarily the case at Maryland Sound, but you know, you know where I am now. I mean, I, you know, I have uh, I have six audio techs that are full time under me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm running an audio department of a you know decent sized corporate you know uh, production company. Um, and it was, you know, that, that type of mentality that I think of just, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to learn, you know, cause I want to do this. Sure. So, yeah, I think that's great. Cause your message here isn't necessarily, Hey, go work for free or Hey, do this specific thing. But you were looking for a path to get to where you wanted and you were testing things out. Right. We're trying things like, because let me take this risk. After I did that gig and the front of house engineer and monitor saw my work ethic and saw my drive and passion, they're like, I want him on every one of my shows. Oh, wow. You know, and uh, and so that was like yeah. a turn, turning point of like, all right, I want this guy. You know, you put, you put yourself into those positions of learning under these people. And look, you'll get your time. You'll get your money. You know, I, I'll, I'll tell people like, no, I'm not saying go work for free. But it, there's been times where, uh, you know, I've offered to do a gig or, or, or something of that nature uh, for the experience. You know, yes, I'm going to make money to pay bills, but it's more about the, you know, getting the experience. And then the second time would be uh, I had done a couple tours, but I was still pretty green. Hadn't done much monitors, but working under some monitor guys. Uh, and I was set to help set up for rehearsals for a tour for Save Van Glover, which uh, he's a tap dancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were doing a tour called Classical Savion, where uh, we had a small orchestra behind him and a jazz band. And he would, he would first half of the show, he would do some classical pieces with them, and the second half would be more of a jazz improv and stuff, right? Uh, so I was just there to help set up the tour. And I walk in the first day. The monitor engineer wasn't there for the first day. That was from our company, um, and uh, the sound designer was there. And I walk in. He's like, you know, hi. He's like, uh, after I'm setting up, and he's like, oh, I was like, do you do monitors? And I had a split second decision in my head to go, you know, am I going to confidently say yes? I'm like, oh, well, I'm learning. This. So I was, you know, I said yes. Yep. He's like, oh, well, you know, you want to help me dial this in? And I'm like, yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, and we got through some some challenge check and stuff like that. And he's like, well, it's like, you know, do you do you want to do monitors on this tour? Because he didn't really care who the engineer was coming from the company. I was like, well, I, you know, I have to check on that. I wasn't the guy slated for it. So, you know, give Bob a call at Maryland Sound and say, hey, you know, this is what's going on. Can I, can I do the tour? And he's like. Well, you think you could do it? I was like, yeah. He's like, all right, don't screw it up. Uh, wow, <laughs> and, so you just and, happened to be there. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and it was one of those things of just, you know, yes, I had the confidence to say yes, but then I had to back it up, of sure, course. And, sure. uh, and it, if you hadn't been able to do the job on the first day, 
Right. We would have been out at Fence uh, And it was a launching pad for, you know, now I, after that, I continued to go out as monitor engineer as opposed to just like a stage jammer on tour. Okay. And so I looked, you know, so those were two big times of just, you know, uh, right place, right time, but being intentional with it and, yeah. um, and stepping up to the challenge and pushing yourself. Yeah, make it happen. Cool. Um, so some quick questions here to wrap up. Um, what is one book that's been immensely helpful to you? So... I'm not the biggest of readers. It's hard to say, but I would say as of recent, Bob McCarthy's book, of course. Okay. I mean, is there any other really? <laughs> there are a few. Yes. But, uh, yeah. Um, what podcast do you listen to religiously? So, um, yours, of course. Sound is online. Oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> um, uh, I did not get paid to say that. Okay. But we're having dinner later, right? So, yeah. you know, well, sort of. Tra- yeah. Trading trade, trade dinner for. Yeah. Uh, yeah no. Um, uh, mix you, uh, spelled M X U, but mix you is a podcast I stumbled onto recently. Um, and been listening to it's, it kind of deals with the church world a lot. Um, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, they have engineers like Scoville and other people on there that whether you're in the church business or not, sound is still sound and, sure. and mixing and stuff like that. And then, uh, break it down podcast, uh, by Matt Carter. Um, what's that? Uh, so, uh, he, um, he's a very, uh, analytical person who, uh, just breaks things down. So he, he's in a band called Emery, um, and, uh, and he has some other podcast ventures. So he'll, uh, he'll take, um, say, uh, an, an album and like walk through like, you know, how they built the album and, and, and like, piece by piece or it's like song exploder. Yeah, or but or but not just music. It's okay. not just music related. So like, uh, so he'll he'll talk to somebody say about like a ketogenic diet, and like he'll he'll talk to them and, and break it down of you know how and why and uh, uh, what you know what they do, um, in, in, in in specific details. It's like the name, break it down. Got you it. know, he'll talk to sure. a uh, a psychologist and, and break down like what it is that they do and um, things of that nature. So it's just uh, you know again, I think it goes back to that learning thing. You know, I'm constantly push myself to learn new things and look at things in an alternative way what do you feel like is your next challenge you're constantly pushing yourself to learn new things and see things in a different way is there like a skill that you really like to improve or or a challenge that that you feel like is is in front of your face at this moment yeah, so, I mean, moving forward, I mean, obviously, there's always things I can learn. Uh, so, you know, I plan on trying to host, you know, we've hosted two smart classes at IMS. I plan on hosting more in the future. Um, uh, you know, for me, math doesn't come yes, as, as uh, right. at, f- firsthand, right? Sure. So uh, that's why, you know, taking it over and over again, there are certain things that, you know, I have to just repetitively think about and, 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 and sink in, okay. you know, uh, and so... You should um, just give up and get it tattooed on your arm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so no, I, I think there's always areas with, you know, just tuning practices, um, sound fundamentals of just aiming and, and box types and stuff like that you can learn. For me right now, it's more of learning how to uh, teach better, right? So I'm responsible for training my staff. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and I think I do a decent job, but of course you could always do better. So learning how to communicate um uh, you know the IMS way, as we call it. You know, like, hey, this is how we, how we roll. This is this is why we do the things we do, um, and uh, we we concentrate heavily on educating our our techs. Um, so learning how to do that better is kind of my next you know venture and documenting it and make making training materials for for my guys. Oh, cool. um, that's both. Um, you know, it's cost effective too, and not having to pay for us all the training. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's very personal.
So Chris, tell us about the biggest or maybe the most painful mistake you've made in the job and how you recovered from it. Or maybe you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So it was actually on my first tour. Oh, wow. Uh, So my first tour uh, was Kem as R&B artist, uh, and the opening act uh, or middle opening act was Fantasia. She was an American Idol winner. Uh, um, I forget what season, maybe two or three. And you were doing monitors? Uh, So that one, I was just kind of, again, stage jammer. First tour, so there was a front of house engineer, monitor engineer, and then me. Um, And um, so I was responsible for, you know, know, patching a stage each day, stuff like that. So um, Fantasia, uh, it was her hometown in North Carolina, um, and I forget, uh, Greensboro. It's Greensboro, North Carolina. And we're doing a theater. Hand her her mic, and, she, and, and the crowd knows. Oh, so hometown and her birthday. Okay. She walks it's out. Any words? Yeah. <laughs> hand her her mic. She walks out on the stage, and you can't see me right now, but I'm holding the microphone. My, my lips are moving, but nothing is coming out. No sound. What? Did and that do? moment, I'm like, oh shit, that's me. What happened? I forgot to turn the mic on. Oh my god! <laughs> so I had to quickly run out there, turn the microphone on real quick. The whole crowd cheered, uh, but it was pretty obviously pretty embarrassing. And I have since uh, never forgotten to turn a microphone on and power lock it. Wow! <laughs> so Chris, where is the best place for people to find you if they want to connect with you and keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn right now for sure. Um, you know, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, I, I I hire freelancers all over the country for for the work we do, so that's how I stay connected and find new freelancers. Um, I post a lot of all the work that I'm doing on there, um, and so that's pro- probably the best from a from a professional standpoint. Cool. Uh, also, um, you can also follow uh, the work we do with IMS. Uh, so you can follow us, uh, IMS Technology Services. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram uh, and LinkedIn as well. And that is a broader scope, maybe not just the shows I'm doing, but the shows that you know I design and be a, I'm a part of. Okay. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for gigging with me as well. We did it. <laughs> Sound Design Live. <laughs> Chris, is there anything I forgot to ask? Yes. The most important question in audio. Oh, wow. Okay. What? What does XLR stand for? Isn't it like something left, right? No. What? You were wrong. It is Canon X-Series latching rubber connector. Thank you to Tears for Fears for all the music in today's episode. If you'd like to hear more of their music, you can go to the radio, I guess. I also want to thank DPA Microphones for loaning me the 4,007 microphones that you heard Chris and I talking into. Um, They sent me a review copy of those, plus the 4090, so I'll be writing something about those pretty soon. Sound Design Live is supported by Dave, DC Sound Op, Senqui, Ellis, Megan, Joel, and Bob. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. Live.